Romans chapter 7, this is really our third or fourth approach to this very critical passage. And we wanted to make some announcements again. As I mentioned last night, Pam and I are taking the grandsons to see Jesus. So we'll never be back. It's the play at Sights and Sounds in Lancaster. They've held my feet to the fire for a year about this because they, they really liked Jonah. So this time it's Jesus, which is going to be pretty amazing. So this is from, la- yeah, tonight. There is service tonight. Sunday, Pastor Brian Messick will be taking the pulpit. And he's been prepping for a long time about that, as he always is. Wednesday the 4th, there'll be no service. You'll all be seeking out fireworks, I'm sure. But on the 5th, Thursday, Phil Henry Power Gospel. He's gathering some new material for that. And Sunday, July 8th, we'll be having communion service. And then we'll be having our visitors from Mississippi Tape DVD group, and then our Knoxville DVD group is coming in later in July. So we will be holding the full boat on those weeks, July 7th through the 12th and July 18th to the 22nd. And we never take for granted our Ohio group that are here tonight, right there, our representatives. And... He thought he got away with it last night. Pastor Brown reached a very significant age yesterday. So happy birthday, Pastor Brown. You thought you got away with it. Let's embarrass him. Come on. I kind of gave up on this, but, you know, double honor and everything. So It's not 80, is it? You didn't turn, no. It was something like, it was a significant age having to do with usual retirement age. It's way past reverse mortgage age. I know that, so. I know. This is the liberation of the will, part three. And our past few approaches to Romans 7. Now, 7, 7 to 25 constitutes a separate section within Romans, a very important and significant section within Romans. And we have been approaching it with the fact that there has been a biased interpretation of this. It began as early as Augustine in the 4th century and then carried on by Martin Luther, at least the early Luther, and then Melanchthon and some of the reformers. And we've tried to dispel that bias. It's very important in interpretation of the scriptures that the interpreter avoid any bias because there's a tendency to interpret scripture in one's own favor and against another group that it doesn't seem to favor, and that's, that's a bias that Paul's trying to dismantle in Romans. So let's prayerfully approach this subject. Father, I come to you in absolute dependence upon your Holy Spirit, because only you can enlighten us in a way that gives the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. And so we ask that you will truly receive your due glory through this message tonight and that due attention will be paid to your divine action in Christ and your divine action in the Holy Spirit. We ask that you'll open our minds then to understand the scriptures in a way that leads to a Divinely approved, liberated livingness through the word and the spirit. And that this will promote unity, not only here in this local household of God, but throughout 
our generation and the one to follow, that it will add and not detract from Christian unity. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Now, I think it's important to make a second approach, as we did last night, a first one, to our passage in Romans 7 in order to reiterate and further clarify some major interpretive points. And again, because the first person pronoun, I, is used throughout this passage, it is wrongly assumed by interpreters that Paul is speaking strictly of his own experience. In other words, that he is speaking autobiographically. And it's endlessly debated. It was when I was in Bible college. It was after Bible college as a pastor. It was endlessly questioned and debated whether Paul is speaking of himself before or after his conversion. But neither of these assumptions rises to the status of an accurate interpretation. By using a kind of speech in character, a dramatic speech in character, Paul is showing the impossibility of liberation and justification and what I'm calling now, by abbreviation, G-A-L, a God-approved livingness. This is a theme that's going to come into play in Romans beyond what I thought when I first saw that phrase or first thought of that phrase, a God-approved livingness. And going to come into play not only Romans 6 through 8, but also Romans 12 through 15, It also is introduced in Romans 4. It's very important. There is a God-approved livingness that Paul's gospel brings about through the Holy Spirit and that the gospel of his competing missionary does not bring about and cannot bring about. And so by using a kind of speech in character, Paul is showing the impossibility of justification or rectification and a God-approved livingness by observance of the Mosaic law. Observance of the law, when I say law, I'm using it throughout tonight as a Mosaic law or the Sinaitic law, the law that came through Moses, the law of Sinai, the commandment aspect of Torah. And observance of the law cannot liberate the will from slavery to sin for two reasons. One, sin, capital S-I-N, has commandeered the the commandment aspect of the Mosaic law. Sin has commandeered it. We used the first personification of sin is what God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7. Sin crouches at the door it's a personification of sin and Paul makes it very clear that the law came through Moses but before that sin came through Adam sin came into the world through Adam sin was in the world before the law came when the law came sin co-opted it for its own evil purpose sin as an apocalyptic Cosmic power commandeered, we could even say hijacked the law of God. That's how exceedingly sinful sin is. Not the law, but sin. So, for the first reason why the liberation of the will cannot be through the law, observance of the law, or doing Deeds in compliance with the law of Moses is because sin has commandeered the commandment of the Mosaic law. The second reason is the one who attempts to be rectified by the law, like everyone else, is of the flesh and sold as a slave to sin. That's true for the whole of the human race except for the man from heaven. the Son of Man who came down from heaven. And so Romans 7, 7 to 25, and I'm going to try to breeze through it, and we'll reiterate it in another time down the road. 
is a dramatic and powerful illustration of the impossibility of anyone being justified in God's eyes by the works of the law. The misnomer, misinterpretation, is that the law cannot be observed. That's not true. The law can be observed, and Paul wasn't lying when he said that according to the external rectitude of the law, he was blameless. But in the same breath, he said, according to the rectitude demanded by the law, blameless, and as far as religious zeal, I persecuted the community of God. So the idea here is even if you are fully compliant with the law and blameless according to its external standards, you still aren't rectified by it. You still aren't justified by it. Your life is still not divinely approved and sin still enslaves the will. Murdering Christians means your will is enslaved by sin, even though you're blameless as far as external Compliance with the law, which Paul was blameless about. Didn't say he was sinless. When he sinned, he offered the proper sacrifice. But we know that in Hebrews 10, 1 to 2, the sacrifices which are offered year by year, the Feast of Atonement and elsewhere and elsewise, cannot take away the consciousness of sin. Now, What I've done in the pincer strategy is taken from the left flank as we look at Romans, the left flank, Romans 1 through 4. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul allows a powerful echo to come from Psalm 143, 2 into his argument. And that begins to turn to the astonishing pivot of Romans 3, 21 to 26 in which Paul begins to expound his gospel. The seed of the gospel is there. It closes with the name Jesus in Romans 3.21 to 26. 26 is the name Jesus. The justified one, the one that God justifies by means of that one's faithfulness, is Jesus. The whole point of Romans, and we're seeing this Sunday mornings, The whole point of Romans is the righteousness of God is apocalyptically revealed by the gospel. And God's righteousness means that he was righteous to deliver his kingly representative when he called out for deliverance. And that he was righteous to justify the one who died, which is Jesus. Romans 3.26 does not talk about the justification of someone who benefits by Jesus' faithfulness, but the justification of Jesus' own faithfulness, the justification of Jesus by his own faithfulness. When he died, everybody died. When he was justified in his death, everyone was justified. That's another subject, but this has to be understood. Romans then allows in verse 20, Psalm 143, 2 says, no living human being can be justified in your eyes, speaking to God. Your servant is speaking, God's servant. He says, do not enter into judgment with your servant because no one living, no flesh can be justified in your eyes, period. No one living. Paul adds to this, and it's not illegitimate for him to do so. He says in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no one living, no flesh can be justified by the works of the law. What's he doing here? He is doing what is known as an a fortiori argument. Now, this is a little in-depth teaching. It's a little complicated But my goal is to teach Romans, and you can't teach Romans without going through this stuff, and it's important. He's using an a fortiori. I always illustrate it with push-ups because that's the first way I heard it explained. An a fortiori argument is arguing from a position of strength or from a point of strength. If someone, say, I could do... I said 100 last night. That's insane. What if I could do 50 push-ups and I could demonstrate it to you up here and do them impeccably and with repetition and then jump up and say, now, 
You saw me do 50 push-ups. I can do 15 push-ups. Then you're going to say, well, of course you can. You just did 50. Well, Paul's saying here, he's taking Romans 3.20. He's taking Psalm 143.2, which says, no flesh, nobody alive can be justified or rectified or considered to have a divinely approved livingness in the eyes of God. Nobody alive, period. So Paul adds rightly in his argument here by the works of the law. The a fortiori is nobody can be justified who's alive. Nobody alive can ever be justified in God's eyes. Hint, that's why Jesus died. Nobody alive. That's why Jesus died. And when he died, all died. Hint too. But since nobody alive, period, can be justified, then it's obvious that no one alive can be justified by observance of the law, by deeds in compliance with Moses' law. That's an a fortiori. That's an irrefutable, incontrovertible fact. If no living human being alive can be justified in God's eyes, period, then certainly and without question, no living human being can be justified in God's eyes by doing deeds in the observance of the Sinaitic law, the law from Sinai. Now, there's a second false assumption. We have to hammer this before we hit Romans 7. This is a second, maybe third time I've done it. A second false assumption has prevailed in the minds of many readers and interpreters of Romans 7, including yours truly, who was taught this, And that misunderstanding is that the I is divided into two natures here. And that these two natures are at odds. That's not what Paul's talking about. It is then assumed that the flesh is the lower sinful nature. But here Paul speaks of no good thing existing in my flesh... Romans 7.18, he is, is, what he's doing here is not saying that there is a nature in which there's no good thing. He's saying, in me altogether, as a man in my own resources, there is no inherently good thing. I'm not capable of producing an inherently good thing. Paul does not split the person. He doesn't split the I. He splits the law. That's the point of this. The law that came by God is God's law. But when he says, I see another law at work in my members, it's the same law, but it's like another law because he's talking now about the law of God co-opted by sin. It's another law to him. It's just like somebody saying, Wow, you're another person. You're you're like another person. You're angry today. You're not your usual pleasant self. It's like you're another person, only this time it's like another law. The letter is what Paul calls it in Romans 2.29 and in Romans 7.6b. The letter. And in 2 Corinthians 3 throughout, he calls it the letter. But he said the letter kills But here he says the law doesn't kill, but the letter kills. What's he talking about? The letter is the law hijacked by sin. That's the difference. And so he says what God wants for us in this divinely approved livingness is a newness of life through resurrection from the dead with Christ in Romans 6, 4, and a newness of service. Not in the latter, but by the Spirit. In Romans 7, 6b, that's what kicks off 7, 7, oddly enough. Paul does not divide the I that he uses in here into the higher and lower nature here, nor does he split humanity as a whole into the righteous and the unrighteous in a way that is traditionally thought. You have to get last night's message, and I think it's out there. It is. It's out there. It's in print, and I beefed it up with some verses so you can get last night's, even if you weren't here last night. And so, again, by applying applying the pincer strategy from the left flank, Romans 3.20, to Romans 7, 7 to 25, 
we get some interpretive potency here. Romans 3.20, and everything that's gone before that powerful conclusion comes into Romans 7.7 to 25 to illustrate dramatically by a kind of drama, a one-person drama, the impossibility of any human being whatsoever being justified, liberated, or transformed into a state of God-approved livingness. G-A-L happens to also be the abbreviation for Galatians, which may be our next step. Only because of the connection with Romans. And so it's impossible to bring, be brought to this God-approved livingness by observance of the law that came through Moses. This interpretation of Romans also plays well, concurs, agrees, whatever you want to say, with Paul's overt universalism, with his obvious overt universalism. Now, one of my favorite authors was Douglas A. Campbell, as I showed you, The Deliverance of God, that book that if you threw at somebody and it hit them, you could be liable for, their, for manslaughter. It's so big. But he wrote another book, and at the end of the book, Douglas Campbell, because I never knew what he thought about the universal aspect of God's salvific will, he said there is no other way of looking at it that makes sense but universalism at the end of his latest book on Paul which is only 170 some pages it's the only thing that makes sense if you're going to really see the effect of Jesus he said and he believes everyone will be raised from the dead in glory and he said but then he has his own little phrase which I think is right albeit some more shamefacedly than others and he's kind of, but it's interesting that you follow these, you, you, these guys have such phenomenal insight and you go, but how come they didn't get to that? And he did get to that. So it's, I just thought I'd throw that in. So this interpretation of Romans I'm telling you about now plays well with Paul's overt universalism, which he expressed especially in Romans 5. And it also goes along with his prescription of God-approved livingness that begins with banking on one's co-crucifixion, co-burial, and co-resurrection with Christ to newness of life. On the other side of this, Romans 7, 7 to 25, we have Romans 8, in which the apostle will bring in the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of Christ, in this God-approved livingness. He's already signaled the Holy Spirit as being the one here, and he's already signaled the identity of the authentic Jew being by the Spirit in Romans 2.29. He's already signaled his pneumatology in Romans 7.6b. He boils over with it in Romans 8.2 through 27, the indispensable aspect of the Holy Spirit in our God-approved livingness. And also in Romans 5.5, 5, a person is a Jew by the Spirit and a lover of God, which is a true Jew, by the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in our hearts in Romans 5.5. 5. So this love is a fruit of the Spirit by which a person is a true Jew in both identity and activity. Romans 9 through 11 is not about the problem of Israel's unbelief. It's about the identity of Israel. Who is Israel? So the next step is to see these principles exegetically manifested. So here we are. Let's end of the runway now we're in the air verse 7 I'm going through this very briefly through 7 to 13 because we've already been there what then Paul says is the Mosaic law sin most certainly not Meganito. on the contrary I and this I is not Paul although he can relate to this this I is what I've said is the no one that can be justified by the works of the law. It's the no one that can be justified by the works of the law. His competing missionary teacher 
to the pagans in Rome has told them that they can be justified by the works of the law. Paul's showing by a speech and character, this is what happens when you try that. And so you guys that are doing the works of the law, he's saying in Rome, you don't really have anything to boast about against your Gentile brothers and sisters, do you? And don't get me wrong, he gets the Gentiles to curb their enthusiasm on the other side of Romans and Romans 11, as we've seen. So there'll be inequality, there'll be fairness. Everybody will get a trophy. So, I would not have known what sin is if it were not for the law. For example, I would not know what it is to covet if the law, he's talking about the Ten Commandments here, had not commanded, do not covet. But sin, capital here, because he's talking about a cosmic suprahuman power, an apocalyptic power. Sin, commandeering the commandment, taking it over as a base of operations, brought in me, brought about in me, every kind of covetous lust. For apart from the law... Sin is dead. Sin doesn't have any activity. Sin is dormant. It doesn't do anything. Now, once I was alive without the law, but then the commandment came. The expression of the law's demand came, and sin was revived. And I died. I discovered that the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, here it is again, it's not the law. Sin, seizing a base of operations, that's a military term, through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, he says, new paragraph, verse 12, the law... In toto, that's the law that came from Sinai, is holy. And the commandment, that which the Torah requires of man, is holy, righteous, inherently good. But it became the cause of my death. So he said, did something inherently good become the cause of my death? Was law the culprit that killed me? Of course not, he says. On the contrary, sin, in order to be manifested as sin, as the culprit, brought about death in me through that which is intrinsically good, the law. So that through the commandment, sin might become immeasurably sinful. That is, sin might be shown to be what it is in its inherent sinfulness, its demonically evil nature. When the law came, sin was already in the world through Adam. The law came, sin was crouching at the door, and as soon as the law came, sin pounced. But God's not, God wasn't put off by this. He brought in the law to increase the consciousness of sin and the intensity and the multiplication of sins through people to prepare them for what? the coming of his son for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God did. God did. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemning sin in his flesh. That's why there's no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus, because you're in the one in whom sin was condemned and then he was raised or justified. Now this is, going to still be somewhat in obscurity before it comes into clarity. For we know that the law is intrinsically spiritual, says verse 14. And part of that means that it's it's requirement of rectitude, which is a divinely approved livingness, is fulfilled only by the Spirit. As Romans 8, 4 says, those who walk in the Spirit in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, those who in Galatians 5, 5, wait for the righteousness, the hope of righteousness in the Spirit by faith, 
in them the righteousness that the law required internally, not externally, internally, meaning love for God and love for one's neighbor, is fulfilled in them who walk by means of the Spirit, Romans 8, 4. So we know that the law is intrinsically spiritual, or its, its requirement of rectitude is only fulfilled by the Spirit, but I am of the flesh. The I here is not Paul, though he can relate to this. It's everyone who tries to be justified. It's everyone who has the honorable and noble aspiration for life and for liberty and for freedom. That's a noble aspiration, and it's not just a Christian aspiration. But I'm of the flesh, having been sold as a slave to sin. I don't even recognize what I'm producing because I do not practice what I intend to do, but I do the very thing I abhor and hate to do. To paraphrase this, what comes out of me was not intended by me. I actually heard a very young child once. He did something, I think he hit somebody or bit somebody or something, and then went to his mother and said, why did I do that? And he was really serious. Why did I do that? That's kind of like what is going on here. You aspire, intend, and desire to produce the good, but then you produce the opposite. The thing that you hated and didn't want to do, you end up doing. Because law was commandeered and hijacked by sin. Not because the law is sinful, but because sin is exceedingly sinful in taking over the law. I don't recognize it as the fruit of my intention, what comes out of me. I intended the good, the right, the spiritual, but what I'm producing is something I don't recognize, something foreign to my intention. Paul is showing the Roman saints here that the production that's coming from this teacher's gospel that he's opposing, this gospel of justification by law observance, is the very thing that's creating the factiousness, divisiveness, and ressentiment that's exempting the community there from experiencing, well, from inheriting the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, divinely approved livingness, peace, harmony, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Remember, all of this is intended to produce unity among the saints in Rome, including Romans 7. In Romans 7, by showing that intending rectitude, intending it, there's nothing wrong with that intention to intend, and again, I use the word rectitude to define a divinely approved livingness. To intend rectitude by the works of the law actually aggravates sin's control and enslavement of the will. So Paul is still active in a strategy here to demolish the fortress of human boasting in which those who adhere to the teacher's gospel are hiding This isn't a matter of law versus grace. This isn't Paul against Judaism. This isn't Paul against Jewish people. This is a matter of two missions to the pagans, two missionaries. Both are Jewish missionaries, Paul and the teacher that he opposes. This is about two missions to the Gentiles. One is a law-observant one. The other is a law-free one. It's about the uncontingent grace of God, the unrestricted love of God, and the universal mercy of God. So Paul is dismantling the fortress of human boasting in which those who adhere to the teacher's gospel are hiding. But he's not trying to demolish it to demolish them They're hiding in a fortress, but they're really imprisoned in a dungeon. And he's trying to destroy the fortress to let the prisoners free out of the dungeon.
all of this is really what he said he's doing in second Corinthians 10 4 to 5 the epistle that he wrote just before Romans he said hey my weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of fortresses and the letting go of the prisoners now I know this is obscure now but it's going to become clear I have to keep hitting this and keep hitting this I heard from a pastor today a pastor friend who loved revelation and he loved lenses he said I loved lenses and I loved revelation he said the joy of the Lord overtook me I'm overwhelmed at the clarity and then he said I wasn't getting the same out of Romans until now now I get in Romans what God is doing through the teaching and he said now I have overwhelming wonder and awe it's gone from obscurity to clarity I see what the Spirit's doing and and that's really edifying because I knew I know that's what's going to happen to everybody But it's a little bit obscure and don't feel bad and get down on yourself that you're not a good Bible student if you're not getting all this. I've I've got so much I'm wrapping my arms around right now that it's it's almost indescribable. It makes me almost good for nothing but this. So a grocery list of three items goes like I get to the store. It's it's supposed to be let's say milk bread and bananas. I get to the store and I go, milk, there's a couple other, what are the other two things? And I can't remember the other two things, so I have to text Pam and she, you know. But I got to hold all this together in my mind. So I have an excuse for being an idiot in every other area of life. Not really. Now, this doesn't let me off the hook, believe me. Now, This strategy is not only effective in demolishing the fortress, but in destroying the dungeon to let the prisoners go that are held by it. When convinced of the impossibility of justification or liberation, there's a meaning of justification that means liberation too, liberation from sin's control, liberation of the will. The will isn't even free until Christ frees the will. And so all the commandments of the New Testament are addressed to a liberated will, not to an enslaved will. It's ridiculous to give a commandment to a person in an enslaved will. And that's why God liberates the will. And then that's why there are rewards in heaven, as people are asking. Is there rewards? Yes, there are rewards. Because a person now has their liberty, their will is free from sin's control. But then they're addressed with certain mandates in the scriptures. The foundation is clear. The foundation is laid. No man can lay it any other foundation but Jesus Christ. But let every man be careful how he builds on that foundation. And there will be rewards. In other words, now I have a liberated will. God can address me. The Holy Spirit can actually, I'm an addressable person now. I can be addressed by him and he can tell me what to do and I can lean on him and lean on his power to do it. Or I can say, no, I got a liberated will and I'm going to say no. For the first time, I'm liberated in my will. But it's not, the law can't do that. All it does is aggravate sin's control because sin kidnapped the law as soon as it came through the door. So then... When convinced of the impossibility of justification or liberation of the will or God-approved livingness by observance of the law, when the saints are convinced of it and that Christ has ended this fruitless quest in Romans 10.4, the once law-observant and boastful religious saints can drop their guards for the first time and receive their pagan counterparts as Christ received them to the glory of God Christ received us unconditionally uncontingently by us not meeting any contingency any response and we are to receive one another by that same uncontingent grace so Romans seven sixteen, and again I'm breezing through this now if I'm doing what this is my translation now if I am doing I here am doing what I do not wish or intend to do, then I am agreeing that the law is good. 
He's actually defending his position. In Galatians, it sounds like he was saying the law was no good. And a lot of interpreters saying the law is the problem here. The law is demonic. The law is evil. Paul is saying that's not what I was saying in Galatians. I'm agreeing that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who is doing what I hate. But sin that dwells in me. We could say sin that I has a hold on me. I know nothing of intrinsic good resides in me, he says. That is, in my flesh. What does flesh here mean? There are many nuances of that word, my flesh. It means my unaided human resources. There is no capacity for good in my unaided human resources. For the desire to achieve the good, he says, that's, and that good is life and liberty. The desire to achieve the good, this is, you know where this is going, Romans 7, 24, who will liberate me? Who will rescue me? Who will liberate me from this body of death? A body reigned over by death. And that leads to an ecstatic expression of gratitude. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where he's going. So what binds us together as a church? Ecstatic gratitude. That's one thing I have in common with you. Ecstatic gratitude that God has saved us unconditionally, unreservedly, uncontingently, unreservedly. And because I know that when one died, all died, that does something. That puts on a new control. The love of Christ begins to control us, and we see all humankind in a totally different light. I know nothing of intrinsic good resides in me, that is, in my unaided human resources. For the desire to achieve the good is with me but I do not find the ability. I can do no better here than to give Paul Meyer. Paul Meyer wrote The Worm at the Core of the Apple. That's the most famous, one of the most famous articles ever written, one of the most famous essays ever written very recently. And I'll just quote what he said. I got a lot of my insights from understanding, reading three times his article because it's very in-depth. He said this, It is clear that the fault lies not in the law, Instead, the self, no longer the agent of its own actions, is controlled by the alien power of sin. The thought in these verses is exactly the same as in verses 10b through 11. Only now it is not the Mosaic Torah, but the religious self devoted to it that's powerless to achieve what it longs for, that in fact produces the very thing that it is supposed to avoid. So it looks like the law has a false promise in Leviticus 18.5. If you do these things, you will live by them. And it looks like, hey, if I do this. And so all of Psalm 119, we have this guy saying, give me life, give me life, give me life. I love your commands. I love your laws. I love your testimonies. I love your statutes. But life never comes. And it's not because the law is wrong. It's because sin has commandeered the law. So Christ became sin, did he? Didn't he? that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's vital to keep in mind that for Paul, the culprit, the perp, we could say the perpetrator is not the law, but sin. What the religious person wants is to achieve a God-approved livingness. Luther and Melanchthon were wrong. This isn't just a Christian. Christians aren't the only people that want to be, have life and please God and do right. This is a, this is really more like a 
Jew that has allegiance to the law and loves the law. The kind of guy that's in Psalm 1. The kind of guy that's in, or guy, or woman, or gal, G-A-L, in Psalm 119 throughout. All 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22 parts of it. But I love it. All this quest and give me life and give me, you know, and I got all this. And then at the end, the last thing he says is what I find myself praying in, in to God a lot. The last verse in Psalm 119, 176 is I'm a lost sheep. Seek me. Find me. So. What he desires, what this religious person wants is to attain or achieve a God-approved livingness. What he achieves is a psychological catastrophe. Sin is not a lower nature, but a power that gets a hold on the religious impulse and creates the opposite of it. As the law is impotent to justify or to give life, in Galatians 5, Galatians 3, 21, rather, compared with Romans 8, 2, and 3. So the self, the I, devoted to the law, is impotent to secure a divinely approved livingness. In other, Paul didn't fail at obeying the external commandments of the law and becoming externally righteous. He was blameless. But he found in that blamelessness, he did not find liberty of the will. He did not find the life that he sought. He did not find that authenticity and that reality that he wanted until he saw someone on the road to Damascus. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ did for him what the law could not do. So then, the I is not Paul before his conversion. And it's not Paul after his conversion. The I is the self devoted to the Mosaic law and producing the opposite of what it intends because of slavery to sin and because of the absolute impotence, incapability, the radical incapacity of the self in and of itself to be justified in the eyes of God. Now remember Romans 5.13. Sin was in the world before the law. Sin was in the world. It came through Moses. The law, rather the law came through Moses. But before the law came through Moses, sin was in the world from Adam until Moses. What was sin doing all that time? Waiting for the law to come in through a side door so it could commandeer it and produce its results in everybody that tried to keep it. What's Paul saying? You guys on this side, on this corner, that come out to fight with your Gentile brothers instead of come out to share communion with them and share a love feast with them, you ought to know that this is the result of what you get. This is what you get by attempting justification by the law. And I'm here to tell you that you don't need to do it anymore. He said, sin was in the world before the law, and sin was crouching at the door when the law came. So it sprang into action by taking the law captive to fulfill sin's purposes. So that wonderful, noble aspiration of the mind and the heart to find life by the law is frustrated every single time. Not because the law is bad or the culprit, but because sin has co-opted it. That's how sin, that's how sinful sin is. Sin that it may be exceedingly sinful did that. That's the frustration. So by the law comes the consciousness of sin, he says. All human beings were sold into slavery to sin before the law came. And that did not change when the law came. It didn't change at all, except for the worse. When the law came, sin multiplied. But God's grace is much greater than that because wherever sin was multiplied, sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 
Paul never says there's anything inherently wrong with the law, like some interpreters have said. Neither is there anything at all inherently wrong with the desire to find life and liberation or with the Jewish allegiance to Torah that is exemplified throughout the Psalms, especially Psalm 1, Psalm 119. Paul does not fault this allegiance, this sense of aspiration and desire. For life, for liberation, what's the whole Constitution all about? The whole Bill of Rights all about in America is a people's pursuit of happiness. The, the, the desire for liberty, the desire for life, the pursuit of happiness, that kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with those aspirations. He simply demonstrates that as honorable as this desire is, it cannot lead to rectitude in God's eyes in God's view, because just this is going to go to Romans 4, incidentally. Romans 4 isn't a justification by faith passage. Romans 4 shows that Abraham was already in a God-approved livingness before he was circumcised. And he was in this God-approved livingness, which was sharing in the fidelity of Messiah after his circumcision. And this all plays into the God-approved livingness that we, that the gospel really leads us to. So there's nothing inherently wrong with this allegiance, with this desire. It just simply cannot lead to rectitude in God's view because just as the law has been hijacked by the suprahuman apocalyptic cosmic power of sin, so the human agent, the I, in everybody, in the Adamic ontology, the I in everybody in the Adamic ontology is captured by the IDF, the impulsive desire of the flesh, having been sold with Adam to sin as its slave. So the law is good. And so is the desire of the I for life. It's good. But both the law and the flesh are impotent to achieve or produce the good. So here's the quagmire that ensues. I'm going to try to get all the way through here. I know what I'm doing to you tonight. It's terrible. I'm presenting to the, you to this as a challenge. I'm presenting this to you as a challenge. And it's still obscure. But we've got to go the obscure route. It's hard for the teacher. It's harder for the students. But we've got to go this route in order to bring it to clarity. It's got to be a little bit translucent before it becomes transparent. But we've got to do this. There's a lot of theologians saying a lot of nice things about what God has done and the universalistic aspect of it. But my job is to say, does it really say that right in the guts of this Greek? Right in the guts of Romans 7. Because if it doesn't say it throughout, then we have to examine it. The quagmire is what I say ensues now in verse 19. It's depicted stunningly and starkly in 719 to 23. It results in the freeing recognition and ecstatic gratitude for the deliverance of God through Jesus Christ our Lord that leads into newness of life and service in the newness of the Spirit who alone fulfills in us the rectitude or the divine approved livingness that the law requires but can't produce. There is a God approved livingness by which the liberated community becomes addressable by God through the spirit. He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the addressable community, the church. What is the ear he's talking about? It's the liberated will. The, the enslaved will cannot hear the spirit. It's only the liberated will that hears what the spirit is saying to the church. The church is a liberated community. It is a community that is being transformed by the renewal of its mind by the Holy Spirit. It's an addressable community. God addresses the liberated will of his people. Their compliance then can and does issue in reward even now with an experience of the life of the age to come, but more completely, obviously, in resurrection. 
and at the parousia. Look at verse 19. For I don't do the good that I aspire to. On the contrary, I practice now. Prasso is used instead of poeo. I practice the evil that I disdain and rightly abhor. Here we're dealing not so much with ethical as with eschatological categories of good and evil. In the apocalyptic war of the turn of the ages, rectitude by one's own resources is useless, and in fact, it's counter-victorious in the battle. So here the I is not split or caused to be schizophrenic as lots of interpreters have said. The whole self is horrified here that he or she actually practices the opposite of what he or she intended via law observance. The flaw is not in the law. You can remember that maybe because there's rhymes in it. The flaw is not in the law, but it's in the unaided human resources of the observer of the law, which is helplessly enslaved to sin. Romans 7.20. But if I do what I don't aspire to do, then it is no longer I producing the evil, but sin housed within me. In other words, sin that now possesses me because I've been sold as a slave to it before the law even ever came. I was sold as a slave to sin when Adam sinned, when Adam released sin into the world. It's not a genetic passing on of a sin nature. It's sin is in the world that crouches to intensify its enslaving control on someone who really wants to do the law. What a way to undo the teacher's gospel of law, observant righteousness. What a way to undo it. It's such a dramatic and awesome way. The whole self is horrified that he or she actually practices the opposite of what he or she intended through law observance. The flaw is not in the law, but in the unaided human resources of the observer. Notice I said unaided. This opens up the life in the Holy Spirit. The observer of the law is helplessly enslaved to sin. So if I do what I don't aspire to do, then it is no longer I producing the evil, but sin housed within me. The Mosaic law, therefore, is not the culprit. Sin is. Moreover, in this case, neither is I the culprit. Sin is. It isn't I. It isn't the law. And it isn't I. It's sin Got a hold on me because it's got a hold on the law. If I, something comes out of me that I didn't intend, then I, not intending it, I didn't do it. Paul's not making an excuse for the things he did. Like, and I can hear somebody getting this and using an excuse. That wasn't me, it was sin. That wasn't me that stole that this morning. That was sin dwelling in me. No, that's somebody who wanted to steal and did steal. But look at this in verse 21. So then, as far as the, say, Sinaitic or Mosaic law is concerned, the outcome, that means the outcome of the experience that I've been talking about since 7-7, is that for me, the one who wants to do the good, evil is what I find at hand. In my innermost person, I joyfully agree with the law of God. Now, Luther said that has to be a Christian. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be a Christian. That can be a truly law-observant Jew before Christ came. So... There's a biased Christian interpretation that's ruined this whole thing. And as I've said, lots of people hate Paul. Lots of people hate Paul for the wrong reason. Because of the representatives and the misinterpreters of Paul. 
People other than Christians are capable of noble intentions and the highest of aspirations. Romans 7.23, let's close. But I see another law. Now listen carefully. This is not another law. He's saying, I see, an, I see the law of God, but I see now another law, which is the same law, only co-opted by sin. Now he's getting the point. I see another law. Meaning, I see the same law of God, only now I see it as the Mosaic law, the law that came through Moses through, as he says in Galatians 3.19, through the mediatorship of angels. Whenever you're getting into the meteorship, mediatorship of angels or creatures or Elohim, you've already got a problem. Because the law in the hands of somebody else besides God is a problem. Not the law itself, but the law in the hands of the creature. So, here he's saying, I see another law. He's talking here about the same law of God only as co-opted by sin at work in my members. Now, again, we've already shown in Romans 6, 13, when he talks about himself and his members or the sum total of his body parts, he's talking about the same whole person. When you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, you're not just offering your body and let your soul do whatever it wants to do. You're talking about your whole being. So he's saying here, I see another law, the same law, but it's acting different now as it's co-opted by sin at work in my members. This is the same undivided person, not another person, not another law, but the law co-opted by sin in the same undivided person at war with the law of God that I observe in my intention. I observe in my intention the law of God not co-opted by sin. I observe it. I love it. I delight in it. He says... But he says, I see another law at war in my members, taking me captive to the law controlled by sin in my members. And these members ought to be at God's disposal, according to Romans 6, but now they're at the disposal of sin. So what is this conclusion in verse 24? The conclusion of everyone in the Adamic ontology who attempts to find rectitude by the works of the law. What a miserable man I am. This is where the author of Amazing Grace got saved a wretch like me. What a miserable man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death or this body ruled over by death, the second of the apocalyptic superhuman powers from which we cannot extract ourselves? I thank God through Jesus Christ, that Lord of ours. That's the way it reads in the Greek. Jesus Christ, that Lord of ours. I thank God through Jesus Christ, that Lord of ours. Consequently then, with the mind, I serve God's law. But with the flesh, that's me and my own resources alone, Sin's law. God's law is the same as sin's law, only now the law co-opted by sin. He gets the point now. I can't be justified by the works of the law. But what does he then say? Again, the split is not in the person, but in the law. There is no, therefore, in Romans 8, 1, this is what, we don't just start with Romans 8, 1 out of the blue. Eight, Romans 8, 1 comes off of Romans 7. He says, therefore, therefore, there is no condemnation. Meaning, there is justification and not condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How did we get in Christ Jesus? Not by the works of the law, but by God acting in Christ. What the law could not do, God did. 
Romans 8, 2 to 4. That's why there's no condemnation. So therefore, there's no condemnation. That means the flip side. There is justification in Christ Jesus to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not no condemnation for those who obey the law because the law only brings condemnation and death. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are they? Those who are baptized into his death. After all, no one alive can be justified in God's eyes. So Christ, the righteous one, died and in dying was justified because no one alive can be justified, including Jesus. No one alive can be justified in God's eyes. So someone died and in his death was justified. But the one who died and was justified in his death is like the second Adam who lived but brought sin and death into the human race. Christ came and died and brought life and justification to all the same people that Adam brought death and condemnation to. That's what Romans 5, 18 to 19 already said. So I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to say thanks a lot. But watch what the Spirit does to clarify these things. Paul's doing the same thing he's been doing throughout. He's demolishing the walls of bias to create unity among the saints. The unity that will be a great impetus for missionary enterprise in Spain. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We're grateful tonight that we can share the ecstatic gratitude that's demonstrated in Romans 7.25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, that Lord of ours, because God did in Christ what the law could not do, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, so that we, might not only be justified, but brought into a God-approved livingness by the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit. We thank you for this privilege, Father. Bring this church into a divinely approved livingness that is marked by, defined by, love. The love that is the fruit of the Spirit that causes a community to inherit the kingdom of God. 